Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Matt Besser is known as one of the co-founders of the Upright Citizens Brigade, which began as a sketch comedy group in Chicago, moved to New York City, got a TV series on Comedy Central, and opened up theaters and schools teaching improv and sketch comedy in both New York and Los Angeles. Besser also created and starred in a second Comedy Central series, the parody debate show Crossballs, and over the years has performed as a guest star in sitcoms such as Fresh Off the Boat, Modern Family, Parks and Recreation, and Community. But Besser's stand-up career predates his association with the UCB. He has four stand-up comedy albums out, including the audio version of his first solo comedy special, 2016's Besser Breaks the Record. His second stand-up special, Pot Humor, was filmed for Comedy Dynamics in a cannabis club in Portland, Oregon, full of stoners, including Besser. You can hear Besser hosting his popular improvised comedy podcast for Earwolf called Improv for Humans, and still find him every weekend at the UCB Theater in Los Angeles, performing the theater's signature Ask Cat shows. That's where I caught up with Besser recently. We had a lively discussion about changing attitudes toward both pot and improv over the course of our lifetimes, the highs and lows of both. So let's get to it! Matt Besser, thank you for allowing me inside the uh, inner sanctum of the Upright Citizens Brigade. No problem. <laughs> uh, last things first, would it, be, uh, would it be fair to say that of the UCB4, which is a term used for yourself, uh, Matt Walsh, Ian Roberts, and Amy Poehler, that of the UCB4, you are the one true remaining full-time in it to win at UCB? No, I wouldn't say that. I was actually okay. on the phone with all four of us an hour ago. Oh, nice. Yeah. We talk every Monday about decisions about the UCB, actually. Okay. Yeah. I... I I guess I just would come to that presumption or assumption based on the fact that the other three all are are better known now for other projects, while as you're still a visible active member of the theater, whether it's improv for humans, doing live shows, uh-huh. kind of the face of the theater. Okay. Okay. But but that truth is the truth is deeper than that. Uh I don't know. I don't want to take all that credit. So, like I said, I'm talking to them all all the time, and they're helping out. So, for me to say that would be kind of obnoxious, right? (laughs) And if you view me as the face, Sean, then okay. (laughs) Well, you know, there's plenty of people with uh, probably closer eyes on the UCB than myself at this point. Uh Um, But enough about that. I. I bring all that up because there's a line. You have a new special, Pot Humor. Yeah. Coming out via the Comedy Dynamics Behemoth Network. Mm-hmm. Uh, Behemoth is not actually in the name. Um, <laughs> but there's a line late in there where you talk about the the idea of 20 years after being kind of a rebellious person, you're now in a fatherly leadership role. Mm-hmm. And how you have to come to terms with that by the way none of the other four ucb do stand up 
Yeah, that's so. There you go. Right. That's I guess you don't see them out there doing stand. No, you're you see you're me visibly out there. like you're doing things <laughs> with audiences on a regular basis. You're doing stand up, which goes against uh, what people what people's pre, uh, preconceptions might be of what the UCB is: sketch and improv. Hmm. Well, um, I did stand up before I ever did before I even knew what improv was. Here in L.A. or or in Chicago? I started in, uh, well, I really started in college, but I did it in Denver and Boulder when I first started my stand-up career. Okay. And at that point in 1989, I did not know what comedy improvisation was. Nor did I. I know. It wasn't the internet to tell you. <laughs> it was only a couple of books. And uh, then I moved to Chicago and then to do stand up, and then mm-hmm. just randomly uh, just read about it in the listings. I was like, let me go check this out. But uh, no, I, I entered comedy world doing stand up first because it was so big back in the late 80s. It was huge. Right. You came in on the tail end of the first boom mm-hmm. and are still around for the second boom. Yeah. There, uh, there were 12 stand up clubs in Chicago at the time, which is crazy. That is crazy. And uh, Catch a Rising Star, The Improv, Multiple Zanies, Funny Bone, um, all sort. It was crazy, all at the same time. And uh, as many as there are in New York, like you wouldn't blink at that number in New York, but in Chicago, that seems nuts. And now there's 12 improv theaters <laughs> in Chicago, from what I understand. So uh, there you go. Right. Um, what was your stand up like back then? Um, it was very manic. Uh, the very first time I did stand up at, at in college, I was so nervous and I was stuttering so much from nerves that I think people thought I was doing a Bobcat Goldthwait impression, and it worked. <laughs> um, and then I kind of just rolled with that. Like, mm-hmm. I'm just going to go out on stage and just be manic. Not do Bobcat necessarily, but right. in my own material with that kind of energy. And I was also a huge Andy Kaufman fan. I'm sure every other comedian says that. That's from about my age. But uh, I was doing really bizarre shit. Like I brought a, a toilet out on stage that was filled with pennies, and I would count my pennies until someone complained that I'd offer him a penny. It was just very bits that would either work or completely bomb kind mm-hmm. of bits. Were you able to ad-lib at all back then, or was it... More you, That's you had funny you ask. I don't know if I ever thought about that, but uh, the very when I first was doing it in Boulder, I distinctly remember going down. I didn't have a job because uh, I had three months to like find myself. Uh, I had three months to find myself money, so I was just going to do stand up. You know? Okay. And uh, so during the day, I would just go down to this the Boulder Creek, the Boulder River. And uh, I guess Creek, Boulder Creek. And I would just say, I would just do my routine to the trees, but with the purpose of saying exactly as written, not, mm-hmm. not for purpose of getting it out of my system, like you might for an open mic, but like, I got to memorize this and it's got to be word for word. Right. And then I'd go do st- stand up open mics in Boulder and Denver and try to say the thing so word for word that would obviously fuck me up because I'd be so 
oh, I didn't say that right. Uh, I didn't word. No, that's not how I wrote it. I'd be so in my head doing that. And then it took a, it took a long time to realize, oh, you're killing yourself trying to do it word for word. You should just have the idea of what the bit is. Go say it out loud and then work it out, get an audience reaction. So it took me a long time not to, because I was coming from college, like, you got to memorize a poem or whatever, you know. Yeah, I think, I think young comics might, might feel like it's a monologue. Yeah. You're preparing. Oh, it's funny. It's and the very first routine. time I sang us, well, the first time I did it, mm-hmm. since I'd never done anything, 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 I had this script in my head, and like I said, I was stuttering, and I was, I think I was pretty much like jumping around in the script in my head. Like, I wasn't even connecting with the audience. I was just, my eyeballs were in this script in my head going, uh, something about Captain Kirk, uh, uh, three-breasted women, um, uh, and just kind of just skipping from punchline to punchline. When the truth is that most stand-up comedians want to, much like great uh, improv, Stand-up comedians want to create the illusion that everything is happening in the moment, and every <laughs> I guess. But I'm right? thinking of the guys it, that it, that I you, thought that I really liked, like Steve Martin. Did mm-hmm. you think that he was coming up with Arrow Through the Head in the moment? No. Mm-hmm. Did you think I was really into Jake Johansson at the time, who I think has a very precise wordcraft kind of like I don't okay. know if I thought that he was coming like Seinfeld you do it sounds like oh, I'm making an observation and mm-hmm. telling you about it but something some people I think and I think I wasn't into the observational as much mm-hmm. I was more into the Steve Martin types and the Andy Kaufman where it seemed like oh they got a bit worked out here I didn't think Andy Kaufman was coming up with a plant bit <laughs> on the spur of the moment <laughs> Like, I was like, oh, he worked this out. Like, that's the kind of stuff I wanted to do. So okay. what I gravitated to, like, so many comedians will go, George Carlin, George Carlin. I'm not one of those comedians. I was, I was more into the conceptual stuff. Right. You know? The performance art of it. Yeah. So I think it's kind of different. They're different. Like, when people say, like, ah, oh, you got to talk about yourself to be real stand-up. I'm like, mm-hmm. does Steve Martin talk about himself mm-hmm. in most of his material? I'd say no. Like well, I guess, he's doing, he's doing conceptual bits. I guess pot humor is a little bit of both because it's both. you get to um, work off of audience members. Mm-hmm. You're, you do quizzes and you run around the room, bound around the room. Yes, um, and then you have prepared thoughts all around the theme of marijuana, which itself has gone through a mainstreaming. Right. Over the last 30 years. Right. I'm, I'm going to go back to answer your question about, mm-hmm. like, when did I start ad-libbing, I guess. Because mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if I've ever been asked that before or thought about it too hard. But basically you're saying, when did the skill of improv right. and stand-up kind of merge? Yeah, when did it infiltrate your act? I almost wonder, because uh, I've always been good at, at uh, playing off something in the moment, obviously, but I think it's when I, if I'm going to guess, it's when I started doing ASCAT intros um, in, sorry, in <laughs> ASCAT intros in Los Angeles, which, and when I do them by myself, it, it virtually became stand-up because mm-hmm. I just start talking to the audience about uh, whatever they want to talk about. And then it would, it wasn't really working the audience because I wasn't making fun of them. I was more using whatever they talked about to make me think of a subject to make me 
do a stand-up bit on right. it. So then I think I started doing that more in my stand-up act because I felt really comfortable with it. Whereas in like even now, because I did so like so much of that got cut out of my special because it wasn't the written stuff that I liked. That it makes me when I see like Todd Berry do his tour. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or, uh, uh, uh Okerson, uh, I'm like, I want to try that. Or, uh, that's my next thing I want to try. Rory, I want to try just going up and just with, and doing the, the, you know, the Robin Williams thing. I'm just surprised like, you haven't done that more already. I, I do at the beginning I mean, of sets. Like when I did, I'll tell you something. I, I was just at just for laughs this year. And when you do just for laughs, they usually try to incorporate you into one of their, television shows up right. there whether it's the galas or uh one of the stand-up shows like john Dore's show and uh so i did it and you know doing five tight what was it? i think it was seven minutes tight seven minute sets really isn't my thing like i haven't done i haven't made it a goal like i need to get seven minutes together so i can do it on conan or something like that like that's never been a muscle in my head to exercise or care to even so when they made me do it, I was like, oh, okay. I'm used to just doing 10 to 15, no one being that uptight about the light and, you know, not having to be exact. So mm-hmm. I haven't done it very often. And uh, so then you're really thinking about your first, the first line that comes out of your mouth and it has to hit. And I'm, I'm examining it way harder than I have in years. Because when you do a special... I know they're going to be my fans. I've done this material. I've done this hour a thousand times. I have, I'm not nervous about it at all. I'm going to be in a pot club. There's no nerves to that. <laughs> but when I go in front of a Canadian audience who might not know me at all, right. who uh, don't have the same pot things going on necessarily. They have some of them, but mm-hmm. not necessarily everything. They might even use the same words. So I'm starting to second guess, do they say dispensary or do we just say dispensary? <laughs> Is it medical here or is it, you know, I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm second guessing everything in my act. So that night I improvised for the first minute or two when I went up there just on the stage, just making fun of the stage and it killed and it gave me such confidence and it gave the audience confidence in me, right. even if they didn't know me, I think they enjoyed my written material more. So I think that's what you're getting to. Like every standup wants to make you think this is coming just out of their head right now. And I think by, if I just started in with my written standup, it wouldn't appear that way. And I probably would have had a little nerves. Like I haven't had in a while. Like if I just launched into, you ever go to the dispensary instead of going up there and just being in the moment Mm -hmm. and saying, look at this stage and making fun of it in that Robin Williams. And I had so much fun. It was high stakes since the cameras are on. I was like, Ooh, I'd like to do seven minutes of this. (laughs) you know and really challenge myself so that Mm -hmm. i i do want to i do want to start doing that and it's easy to do it at the ucb i like doing it places that aren't the ucb right that's when you know it really works where people yeah aren't already aren't already sold on me or know me or whatever um and you know the further away you are from that like festivals can be really they can they can go one either way (laughs) South, even the South by that room's really pretty hot and usually pretty great, but there's like outdoor stages where you're like, oh, whoosh, yeah. <laughs> this is a comedic challenge here. You still feel challenged though after 30 years? 
Um, you can be, you can be challenged by the environment. Like if we're talking about festivals, like Mm -hmm. you've been, there's literally some that are outdoor stages where you're competing with, you know, the bass beat of nine inch nails or something. So there's that kind of challenge. There's the, is my act fit amongst the acts I'm placed amidst right now? That's a problem. Like sometimes you'll get. The improv will be put in bunch of, in the middle of a bunch of stand-up. It just doesn't work. Or uh, or maybe it works at the beginning of the show or at the end, but not in the middle. So it just kind of – and then there's the stakes of is the camera rolling? Is there – at a, a Outside Lands, I was the MC at the Gastro Magic stage. This is in San Francisco. Yeah. And I've done it a few times. I did, I did it this year too. And most of the times that stage has about 200 to 300 people in front of it. And, uh, but, and they do like four or five shows a day. And it's usually a musician being paired with a chef, thus the gastro magic. It was Anderson Pack on mm-hmm. this particular show. And that dude is huge right now. He's just popping, I guess. And there was 5,000 people in front of the stage. It was the biggest audience I've probably been in front of. Because it's 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 on a lawn, so just the audience is, is just as many people. What time who, of day was it? It was right in the middle of the day. It's probably okay. like uh, four p.m. So I went from like introducing a, a rock band called Cherry Glazer with two hundred people, mm-hmm. and it being like feeling like this is like the UCB outside, right. to oh shit, here's <laughs> five thousand people who most likely have no idea who I am. Mm-hmm. And they definitely don't want to hear any jokes from me. <laughs> um, so then you're like, oh, okay. Then you're... You Why know. is his dad coming out here and talking to us? Right. I'm not going to go out there and go, yo, yo, yo. I'm not going to be that guy. <laughs> so I made the choice just to be an energy guy. Mm. And I still got that. So I, I won the crowd over, but I wasn't stupid enough to try a bunch of uh, my act either. <laughs> Going back to um, that line of yours that you, you you said in Pot Humor, where you talk about um, going from being rebellious to becoming the dad, it struck me that marijuana itself in the culture has kind of, has gone mainstream over the course of your career, much as I say that, much yeah. as the UCB has, yeah, yeah. it's. Is Literally it, in the shows we've done, like the, this this special pot humor, it comes from all my 420 shows that we've done here. Did we start them in New York? I can't remember, but we definitely have done them every year of the L.A. theater, so over a decade. And when we began, and even this was at ASCATS too, when we first came out here, and this is so stupid of us, but it's what we did. At, at, there was so much weed out here as compared to New York. Mm-hmm. Like it, it would just strike you, especially then when it was illegal. Um, that we did this thing because someone organically did it one night, threw, threw a bud up on stage, like a big old weed bud. And we we're like, oh, that's cool. So then we started as a joke. We'd have this time where we're like, some people are embarrassed to throw their weed, let people know that we, so we're going to turn out the lights. <laughs> and anybody who wants to throw buds up on the stage can do it. And that was a thing for maybe a year. And people would throw so much weed up on stage and also condoms and quarters and gum or whatever. But, uh, and then also we're like, what are we doing? This is illegal. <laughs> and, uh, meanwhile we were doing a four April 20th show every mm-hmm. year that I emceed and P 
people would light up at the Franklin location and it was allowed. And that was also really stupid of us. Um, and well, now it no, is allowed or not hey, inside. No, there's but no now. statute of limitations. So what, what happened to all those buds and, and condoms that got thrown on stage? Uh, we put all the buds in the condoms and fucked up. <laughs> is that what you're getting to? I don't I don't know where it's going. Um, uh, I just asked. The no, question. I'm just saying that if we're talking about culture changes, yeah. there was a New York to LA culture change of wow, there's a lot more weed out here and people are a lot more free. And then over the years, it's like you see it when, since I'm doing this yearly mm-hmm. 420 show. Not only the things I'm discussing, like the word dis- I talk about in my special, but the word dispensary 10 years ago, we didn't have that word. You know, so there's just sativa and indica. Most people don't know the difference. I only really learned by watching the special. Right. I would say most pot smoker, non-pot smokers would not know. And most pot smokers didn't know, I'd say, five years ago. Right. But So the whole society, or the term edible, for instance. Everybody knows the word edible now. Ten years ago, you might not know the word edible unless you ate edibles. What surprises you more now? How How much pot culture has gone mainstream or... What's happened with UCB over the last 20 years? I mean, 1999, opening a theater, the first theater in New York, where marijuana is illegal. What's the question? Surprises me? Yeah. Is it, which is more surprising, the mainstreaming of pot or the mainstreaming of the Upright Citizens Brigade? Well, it's funny because I guess both were a goal of mine. Um, I wouldn't say I've, I've been on the forefront of the marijuana <laughs> fight as much as the improv fight um but i was on andy richter's show the other day and we both started out in the chicago scene at the same time you knew everybody in the improv scene right just did if you didn't know their name you at least recognize them and i mean the world and you didn't feel like (laughs) uh, sure there was stuff happening in other cities but not like what in my opinion, what Dell had got going on. Um, so you felt, it felt like probably what grunge felt like in Seattle or whatever. Like I was, uh, in, I was in Seattle in the mid to late nineties and there were three, three improv groups, um, theater sports, jet city improv. And then I was part of a group, but it was, it was mostly short form game. And I'm talking about eighties too. Okay, <laughs> but, it, but even in the but even in the late '90s, it was all short. Yeah. In Seattle, it was short form game based. That's why when Dell, our guru, Dell Close, would say, "I tried this form with, you know, Catherine Harris or something like mm-hmm. that," you'd it felt like you were talking about. It might have been as might as well have been archaeologists talking about when my archaeologist friend tried to break into the tomb. It just felt like you were part of the secret society that not many people knew about, and it felt uh, and or 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 any scene like I just got through reading about the punk scene in the late seventies. Uh, you know, this, the whole Sex Pistols era and how small it was. Like uh, Sex Pistols had these fans called the Bromley Contingent, and within that contingent was Billy Idol, like all these people that eventually became the next round of punk bands. And it, it so reminded me of, you know, this, this. I was a fan, and it was very small, and then I was on the stage. And, and that's – so you say, does it surprise you? Since I work for it, 
anything you work for, I don't know if it surprises you. It more makes you happy, I guess. But um, the mainstreaming of improv really, really occurred to us when we started doing Del Close marathons and there was a group from Japan. I remember the first time that happened and we were all like, holy shit. <laughs> um, it's all over the world, you know? And, but now that, that was probably 10 years ago. And now on a weekly basis, I get emails from Berlin, from China, you know, from all over the world, people asking me for advice or will I Skype coach them or whatever. And I'm like, holy fuck, if Del could see this. And that, right. that is what he wanted for sure. No, I mean, yeah, when he was on his deathbed, he was on the phone with you guys, mm-hmm. essentially saying, carry on the. Yeah, he said message. he said spread the love, and I never—I don't know if I'd ever heard him say that word before. And <laughs> he wasn't—he wasn't that type of guy at all, like a love guru or a touchy feely kind of guy. But when you're in your deathbed, I'm, I'm sure I—I uh, I know you get more that way. Um, but yeah, that's how he referred to it, um, and I think what he meant—he meant a lot of things by that. But uh, there is a love to the group mind and the way improvisers treat each other and work with each other on stage and share forms and stuff like that. And I think that's what he meant. What what do you think he might think looking at the scene now with, with heralds being performed all over the world? Oh, I'd love it. And he said, this isn't mine. Please take this and do with it what you will. Mm -hmm. Like that's all he wanted. And he's not, he's, he was also a guy that felt like he didn't get enough recognition, too. Um, and he would say that. <laughs> so I think he would love how much he is loved or remembered now, too. I don't – I mean, I never got, to, got the chance to meet him, but it, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't guess that he was much of a business guy. No, not at all. Do That's can, why he needed Sharna. Um, like, uh, Sharna was that way or, or, you know, at the, you know, at the very least organized enough to get, he was a junkie at the time when they are just recovering. I guess you're always a recovering junkie, but, um, uh, and he was, what's the easiest way to put it? A free spirit, (laughs) um, an anarchist maverick. Uh, but also when you have a brain on a Maverick as smart as him, it's like almost extra dangerous cause mm-hmm. he can defend any movie he makes, um, and just doesn't care about, he didn't care what second city, the rules, you know, he had a classic feud, a classic comedy feud with second city that improv could be its own art form. And, uh, he died believing that and fighting that fight and i think he won yeah yeah um do you consider yourself a businessman no <laughs> well my dad was an investment banker uh-huh. um i grew up in little rock where i thought in order to be on tv or a rock star a comedian you had to live in hollywood or new york i didn't even it never even occurred to me that that I was a class clown, but it never occurred to me that could be a thing. So mm-hmm. I always thought, you just do what your dad does. I think most people in my generation kind of thought that. My dad does this, and I'm going to do that. That's, that's how I grew up. 
And he didn't tell me to. It's just how I felt because everyone else was going that route. All my other friends. My dad's in advertising. I'm going to be in mm-hmm. advertising. I'm going to be the next name up. Uh, my dad's a lawyer. I'm going to be the next name up on the lawyer <laughs> title. Uh, you know, this is pre-internet. Best, best the best world best is best. smaller. You know, that that's how people thought. So I didn't even think I would be a comedian. But, uh, yeah. Um, I can't even remember what, what question I'm answering. But, but once I... Once I uh, got into college and I was like, oh, anyone can be a uh, comedian. You don't have to be born in, in the right place. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what, what question but was I getting to, though? About being a businessman. All oh, right, right. So, so, it's, it's so in other words, I had that mindset from my, from my home of my dad's a businessman, so I must be. <laughs> and then I took Econ 101 in college. And I was so bad at it, like mm-hmm. from day one. And, it, and I was always good at math. So when I did it, I was so bad. I was like, oh, my God. And everyone around me was great. And I was like, this obviously isn't for me. So I got off that track. Um, in other words, no, I'm not a businessman. It doesn't interest me. So so how did how did this happen then? Like there's... The, the, Are we the talking about my pot humor special? No, well, we're, we're talking about the UCB. And there was so there were many members originally. Some of them moved to New York and got jobs with Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. The four of you, Adam McKay, Horatio Sands, Sands. Um, the UCB four mm-hmm. moved to New York and got mm-hmm. a show on Comedy Central. Mm-hmm. And then when you opened that first theater, though, you're probably not th- thinking. Although you said this was a goal. What was a goal? To to have a business, to have to be, no, I, or, I never or to said see, that. Uh, to see it succeed, that was a goal. To see uh, improv succeed, and whoa, whoa, whoa! But my goal was to have an improv show on television, not to teach it necessarily. My personal goal, like if so, we're talking about what I really yeah. wanted, we definitely didn't move to New York at all, Thinking. with the thought of we'd even teach a class, much less open a school. And dad's zero interest in that. Like, no, no offense, but when you're in your 20s, I, I'm not in Dell's head of like, I got to go spread this like Johnny Appleseed. Mm-hmm. I without question wasn't thinking that. I'm <laughs> selfish. I want my sketch show on TV. Right. That's all I'm thinking. And then Otherwise, we got to New been, York, uh, and then people didn't know how to do this improv mm-hmm. that we were doing, and... They were like, teach us that. So we did. And we didn't want to get waiter jobs, so we did that instead. So how does it feel now, 20 years after that, to to now have a business that's that you or somebody... Who, who actually is running the show? We have a CFO. We've always had tons of people running the show. Like, okay. Like, none of us even... Because I don't think people... I don't think, you know, there's online critics, there's people debating there have been debates for at least the last 10 years about the payment system but i don't think many people actually know how it's run is this an interview about my pot humor special sean it was in the beginning barely but much like improv it kind of goes no but you forced it there oh did i yeah you picked the one thing from my special about my theater and made it go that well but also the mainstreaming of yeah, but so what? What are we asking here? So who well, okay, runs so in, the theater? So in nineteen, and why? okay, so in nineteen ninety nine, mm-hmm. you guys are opening your first theater in New York. Yeah, pot is illegal. Yes, 
people don't think of improv schools in New York. Improv is 20, 20 years, 20 years later, pot is legalizing everywhere. Improv schools are popping up everywhere. Mm-hmm. How does that happen? Um, so I, I don't know much about pot, so I can't ask you about that. I can't ask you, how does... Do you how, know how much does, about running a theater? No. No, that's, but so you're asking, asking me about that. Because I don't know. <laughs> but you're not asking me about weed that you don't know. I'm not uh, What's that? I'm You're not, not interested in selling weed? Smoking weed or selling it, no. Okay. We'll ask you this. Do you think you have to be interested in a topic to watch comedy about it? Hmm. You don't have to, but you tend to... Did you see you Nate? Did you do Nate Bargat's uh, last... Uh, Tennessee Kid? Yeah. Yeah. It was great, right? Yeah, it was great. Did you? Are you a college football fan? I am. Oh, you are. Yeah. Vanderbilt's so, not doing very well. No, they never are. But like <laughs> to me, like I that's maybe Arkansas my. Did I have an embarrassing loss yes, this year? We're, we're more than one. That's why he and I commiserate a lot on that. Okay. But like that, what I'm getting to is that particular SEC football. Like he had this very specific bit. Mm-hmm. But I still think you could be anyone and enjoy that bit. You don't have to like SEC football football at all or know anything about Vanderbilt to mm-hmm. enjoy that bit. And I hope that's the way my pot humor show is. You haven't mentioned this, but I, I like to talk about how it affects my life mm-hmm. and my family. And right. I talk about my daughter a lot right, you're in the a special and my, uh, and my wife and... You know, you're focusing on the, the part of it about me being an owner of a theater, but me being a dad, that changes your life. Like having the responsibility of another human being all of a sudden. And I, it, 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 it's chemical. It's, and I say it's chemical because I almost feel like you don't have a choice. Like I want it to happen. Like when you have a kid, you're like, oh my God, I love this thing. And it's like, my my whole life changed. Like all my goals, all my what I considered important, how everybody I walked around. Everybody says that's what happens when you have a kid. Is yeah, and I don't even like to like, hear. It. When before I had it, I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. I get it, but it is a crazy thing. Mm-hmm. You could say it's like any other huge thing you do in your life. Having sex the first time. What's well, much bigger? All these things. Mm-hmm. Have it doing acid. It's just like I could never imagine doing acid until I did it. Um, you can never imagine having a kid until you have one, unless you're maybe a sociopath. Um, and there's a lot of people I feel like, man, you should do some acid. It would do you good. Mm, man, you should have a kid. It would do you good. But uh, change, Open your eyes to how the world really works. But like I say in my special, please don't go out there and get a kid just to get a buzz off of them. But... <laughs> Yeah, and we, we don't get uh, sativa when you really want indica. Yes, but when you're when you're or looking for these large, twenty years ago, how does it change? Kind of mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, I don't want to say stuff that's too obvious, but biggest changes are with like the internet and like how people communicate with each other and uh, how shows are promoted then versus now. How comedy critics. Uh, review shows or don't review shows or yeah. criticize comedians or 
there's all sorts of things that have changed that I'm, I'm surprised by, but I don't know. To me, it's the zeitgeist of the internet more than anything that have, right. has caused a lot of these changes. Like I was saying earlier, I had no idea what improv was. I had no idea you could be an entertainer and mm-hmm. not be born in an entertainment spot. Um, when we moved to New York, this was still pre-internet, if you can believe it. When we moved there. You couldn't know about long-form improv or right. get that it was different. So you couldn't look at a video and say, oh. You could get an AOL disc in the mail, but it wouldn't teach you improv. But you wouldn't even know <laughs> that there was such a thing that was different. That's right. why I think we blew people away, not necessarily because we were funny. I'd like to believe that. But also we really were doing something people hadn't seen. And that just doesn't – that doesn't exist as much right. anymore. And you could say that maybe the same thing about weed too, um, that it's amazing when a term like 420, for example, does grow. Like how does something like the phrase 420 grow pre-internet? That to me is fascinating. And then yeah. how it explodes once the internet does go. Because if you were in weed culture pre-internet – you may know 420. Yeah. Now, post-internet, it would almost be impossible for you to be a weed smoker and not know the term 420. I tried I tried doing stand-up in the 90s, and I didn't like – I liked improv better because I didn't have to prepare anything. Hmm. <laughs> when I had to prepare, I was much like you. I was so in my head about the words and the way the words came out that I didn't like it. But I remember trying to write a bit about – how those things spread like there were celebrity rumors that got passed around the world when there was no internet and i was Rod like stewart richard Gere, kenny rogers do you remember the kenny rogers and stevie nicks one no kenny rogers uh <laughs> uh this is such bullshit i think i think we we did this one we attached two different rumors but uh, there was some about someone doing blow out of stevie nicks asshole <laughs> And, and that was it like was and it was for a while it was like Kenny Rogers did a line of coke out of Stevie Nicks asshole. But it yeah, the, you would the, hear that rumor. Like I remember I remember the I, Rod Stewart one was huge. And the Richard Gere one was huge. Yes, and I yes, remember it was. thinking as a young stand up like how like who was the person who started that and how did they manage to get everybody in on this without they, an internet? Without an internet. They used to say that uh Going back to my investment banker dad, mm-hmm. um, someone should do a documentary on this because I, I don't know enough about it. But before the internet, from what I understand, Wall Street guys were really into like joke jokes. Mm-hmm. Like there's this guy, he goes in a bar, those kind of jokes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Priest, a rabbi, and a. And, yeah, those kind of jokes. And that since, since New York is up first, Mm-hmm. Stockbrokers from all over the United States will get up New York time to, as soon as the market's ready. To be those business hours. Yeah. And I heard that in the day it was a thing to before the market start, started, the bell mm-hmm. started, like exchanging these jokes was a thing. And to me that sounds like a way that those mm-hmm. would spread through okay. telephones. Or teletypes, or yeah. So we're all sending it to New York to tell mm-hmm. the Walt, the guys on the floor, the jokes, and they're and they're on the, the street, phone so spreading it to other people. Jokes. Yeah, exactly. 
So they're spreading the street jokes when they get on the phone when they're selling their things and shit. I'm oh. just I'm I'm kind of talking about my ass there, but uh, <laughs> I did hear that at one point. But I do know it? that that was the thing with with stock guys. Mm-hmm. So does it feel like does it feel like when I ask you about the UCB? Mm-hmm. Does it feel like or when anybody asks you? Yeah. Um, does it feel like somebody is criticizing your child? Like this is your baby and um, it feels like you're asking. You like, don't know what it's like because you haven't had a kid. Well, there's definitely that. But like this interview, I was told Sean wants to interview you about your pot humor special. Well, so, it, it, was so also we, pitched, it was also pitched to me as like the legacy of the UCB as well. Huh? Yeah. I'll show you the email. Oh, do please. Yeah. Please do, because that's not how I heard it. Because I'm kind of bored of that question, one, because I've answered it so many times. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Well, that's why what, I'm trying to so think there, like different ways to, to but, explain it to people. Explain what? The business of improv. Um, because it's not, a, like, it's not a business, but it's become one. So it's like, so people have all these questions about it. And I th- I feel like most of the, most of the questions are 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 talking about it the wrong way. So if you take a step back and look at it differently, maybe people might understand. Um, or am I wrong? I, I don't think your question's clear. But I, I I guess first you asked me what is it like having a a child criticized? Yes. Well, to me, I'm trying to promote a stand up special now, mm-hmm. and like I look at myself as a comedian first. So, and I've never thought of myself as a, a theater owner, even though I am. That's not my, has never been my goal, and I've never stated it to be my goal. So when you said, you moved there, I'm like, uh uh-uh, I didn't say that. I definitely didn't say that. Mm-hmm. And so it frustrates me that now, when's the last time you interviewed me? Formally? It's been a while. Yeah. So... I, mean, I want to be. I want to be interviewed. We've had, we've had these discussions off microphone. I want to have a discussion about my special, which is so unique. Mm-hmm. Like, how many specials have been shot in front of an audience that was high? Have you ever seen one? Formally, no. <laughs> Informally, plenty. Well then, well, then when they were allowed to actually get high, mm-hmm. maybe Doug Benson did one. Uh, <laughs> well, you could say informally. Most of Doug Benson shows. Right, but these guys, there was a cloud of smoke the whole time, and I'm mm-hmm. interviewing them, and they're high off their ass. So I feel like in the editing style of this special, have you seen something like that before? No, it, I'm glad that I'm sober watching it, because I feel like if I were on drugs, it might freak me freak out. out. It might freak me out. So at one point in the special... Um, most, I would say everyone who does a special now, you, mm-hmm. you tape two in the same night, right? Oh yeah. Sure. Uh, and, uh, for coverage purposes, for coverage and usually take the best, the best from, of from what show. it is. And usually I'd imagine the second show is better than the first show because you've done it, you've gotten it out, mm-hmm. your nerves are out. That's what I've heard from most people I talk to. So we, in my edit, it's mostly the second show in the edit. Okay. Um, but there was this one bit. That pretty much did the same way. You pretty much do everything the same way, pretty much. But you do, when you're improvising, you're in a, you're jamming, you're riffing. It'll go slightly different. So in this one bit I'm doing, where I talk about when uh, cops find a small amount of marijuana, and the local news reports that. When I edited it, 
I had both versions of both shows playing simultaneously. You realize that, right? Okay. So I had one show in the mirrors playing while the other show was uh, up on stage. Mm -hmm. And I was slowing down the speed on the one show and speeding and pitching up the speed on the uh, second show. Were you aware of that? No, I just saw two different shows. I just saw your reflection doing the same. Thing. But they're not the same. They're slightly different. Okay. I'm doing slightly different punchlines the entire time. Oh, okay. And I'm riffing slightly different the whole time. So I was pretty proud of that. Mm-hmm. I was like, I've never seen this in a special before. And uh, I, I had fun editing that with the editor and, and, and playing with moments like that in the show. And we have a lot of weird stuff like that. So... If you're asking me how I feel, mm-hmm. I want to have interviews about that. I feel like I'm being innovative that way. I feel like I don't see that in stand-up specials. So that's the conversation I want to have. So when you're asking me about how does the business of the UCB mm-hmm. run, be in my shoes. <laughs> I'm all proud of some creative thing, and you're asking me right. about the thing that I don't enjoy doing. So, of so, course, so it's not about being defensive of my kid. Mm. It's, like, it's more like you're asking me about my car. It's like, ugh. I don't know how my car runs. What do you want to know about my car? Yes, I got in a wreck. So why even be in the theater business if you just want to focus on the performing? Because um, I'm not really, and we haven't been. We've tried to make it run itself all these years, mm-hmm. so we really haven't been. Um, we've had people running it for us, and when they come to us and go, hey, we think we should do this, that, and the other, we mm-hmm. go, okay, that makes sense. That sounds good. That sounds fair. And that's how we've run it. So when uh, we come into financial problems and then someone, the people on the, th- on the internet who have never run anything more than a, a lemonade stand, if that are criticizing us, I don't care what they have to say because I know they have no idea what's going on. But it's, but it's not gotten to the point ever for you where, where you, for one, let alone the four of you, wanted to sell it or just or let somebody else run it and just so you could just focus on performing well we did let someone else run it (laughs) we did for a long time and i have been focused on performing right um it's only this year that uh i haven't as much really or times when like we opened up the theater in la i was the ad for a year you know, there's been different times when I've been the AD. In New York, I was the first AD. So mm-hmm. there's been times where I'm like, okay, we're opening up this thing. Artistic director is what we're Yeah. Okay. I'm going to pull up my bootstraps mm-hmm. and really work in on the theater. But otherwise, you know, I want to be a performer and a producer. You know, if I'm uh, producing a show like the CISO show, we had the UCB comedy show for two seasons. Right. We had the Andy Richter Christmas special. I don't consider that. You did a stand-up special for them as well, right? Wasn't that the World Bricker? Oh, that was, oh, oh, no, was I did that. that. I sold that to them, but okay. I didn't do it for oh, them. Okay. I, we produced that ourselves mm-hmm. and sold it to them. Um, but, uh, what did you learn from doing that, that, that helped you when making pot humor? Oh, interesting. Uh-huh. Okay, See, so I threw, I threw you with a by veering it back to performing. Um, well, let's see. What did I pull from that? I yeah. enjoy directing that kind of live stuff. I'll tell you that. 
And it is a different beast than like directing a sitcom or a movie, directing mm-hmm. live comedy. I like that. And I, I was, I was never officially the director of any of those projects, but I, as showrunner, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I was kind of doing that. Um, I'm trying to think how that would have affected pot humor in particular. I'm not sure I have a direct lesson that I okay. applied to that, but, uh, just talking about what I enjoy doing, mm-hmm. I enjoy seeing comedians. I don't want to say young comedians, but you can be an old comedian that's new. So new comedians, <laughs> true, um, uh, that people don't know about yet on our stages. And I like seeing that and go. I, I either know a TV show that could use your help, or mm-hmm. let's find a way to take that exact thing you're doing and put it on another platform. And that was great. As much as people made fun of CISO, that was a wonderful thing that CISO did was put a type of comedy on a platform where a lot of people could see it, that uh, network television isn't putting that type of comedy out there. So it didn't work. Um, but it, I, it was a cool platform for that while it lasted. When, when, when you think about a legacy for the UCB, what, what, what might give you more pride or I don't know if you can, that's like comparing children. Maybe, um, is it the idea of spreading the love of the Herald around the world? Is it the fact that what the UCB was really able to do was get so many people teaching them and then getting them into projects, TV and movies. Mm -hmm. We see UCB people all over the place Mm -hmm. now. Is it when you think of, what you've been able to accomplish with this over the last 20, 21 years, Mm -hmm. what, what gives you the most satisfaction? I like the con I like, I think I just said it, but I like the, I like the comedy. I like when we announced CISO to the theater for the first time, I think I said something like, uh, we finally have the top half of the ladder or the top part of the ladder because, We've always been the bottom of the ladder of like, uh, you can find your voice here, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you can you can literally learn how to do comedy um, if it's improv. Uh, you can find your voice whether it's improv, sketch, or stand up. Um, and uh, but we didn't have the top of the ladder, which is the show itself. So it's like eventually you're going to have to pitch yourself to a network and sell your soul and have them give you notes and make it their own. But but we have nothing to do with that. We can introduce you to those people and those casting directors will come here and those talent people come here. So we're that half a ladder. But with CISO is like, you're just going to put your thing up that thing. You're going to put your voice is going to be exactly what hits the air. Like, I'm, I give them take, I was giving them take it or leave it notes too. Mm -hmm. I wasn't giving them it's this note or nothing. It would be like, I like your thing. Here's some notes. <laughs> Do you want them? Mm-hmm. And maybe they took some, maybe they didn't. Whereas on a network, it'd be like, you take it or this isn't going to be on the air. So you have to change everything. You can't unless you're already established person. How much of that did you guys have to deal with, with comedy central back in the nineties? A lot. Yeah. Yeah. They were very cool in that we had Ken Alterman, was our guy and he was very cool, but he's now the president of the network, but. he is indeed. So, but there were people above him back then. And we always are run. 
I say it a lot. They were very cool to us, but mm-hmm. I know every script went by them and there were notes on every single scene and all that kind of stuff. I guess what I'm saying is the more the more money you're getting as a, a comedian, normally the more someone's controlling the comedy because they're – unless you're, you know, Kevin Hart – doing exactly your stand-up for a lot of money. Odds are you're selling your idea to someone else who's going to change it mm-hmm. for wh- how they feel it's going to do best. Unless you've already proven yourself, which very few people have that. That's rarefied air. Most people, especially young people, have to know your, your, your voice, your vision is going to be altered and changed as soon as you sell it. So the more... Okay, you didn't ask about this doesn't maybe answer the how far UCB and Pot has come, but mm-hmm. like I mentioned Doug Benson earlier. Yeah. I I feel like a guy like him represents what comedians should aim for. Is like even if you don't get picked by mainstream to do your idea, just find ways just to do your thing. Find ways to go out there and do your thing. Find your voice, go do your thing. And if people like you, you'll make money doing your thing. And maybe you'll also get picked up by some, uh, whatever, network that's going to give you a lot of money. And then you'll get to do get that too, but don't make that the goal. And I think when I started, that's all that you felt w- was possible. Sell out or not. That seemed like either gotten comedy central or snl there's very few limited places right so it was like i'm either going to get on that or i fail but with the internet and podcast and being a uh, video becoming more affordable to make and edit like when i in the 90s editing something compared to now is just so vastly different well even what we're doing right now which is talking into microphones into a portable recorder yep that was unthinkable 10 years ago. And, like and the number of podcasters 10 years ago, you needed to have special equipment. You needed to have a studio. And, and whatever money you make or don't make, it's, it's all on you. You can't blame anyone but you. It's like if people want to hear you, they're going to come listen. And the more people listen, the more ad money you'll be able to sell or however you, however you make your money. But that's what I kind of like about that playing field versus the playing field networks where you walk out of a pitch meeting, you go, I got no respect in that pitch meeting. Cause I didn't walk in with a star and I know I had a good idea and you walk out of those meetings feeling bitter because you feel like it isn't a level f- playing field and it isn't fair. But I feel like the podcast world's fair. The stand up stage is fair. Like who, whoever's funny is eventually going to get asked to do something. And so uh, it'll work out for you if you're funny. Well, with podcasting, I, f- I feel as though there are so many podcasts out there that there is an element where it helps to have a star either on the show or plugging or pushing the show. Mm-hmm. Because there's just so much content out there now. Right. But it, you, if we see nobodies go to somebody, you know, if those... Uh, it's possible. But it's uh, it's show business still. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. With um, I mean, and, and the UCB was 
part of the the UCB story is about DIYs, right? It's take, taking your love of that, uh, not the Sex Pistols, but just post Sex Pistols punk scene mm-hmm. and Fugazi and all that, and going, let's just do our thing and. Um. Yeah. What was I? I saw. I've been watching a lot of those documentaries about the early punk scenes, and uh, does it make and, you change your perspective on on what on what you thought you knew? Um, it kind of reinforces my perspective, if anything, because I came from my own scene, mm-hmm. and it's just interesting to see how similar scenes are. Uh, but like there is this Gilman Street scene in Oakland that's where Green Day started out and once Green Day went to a major label they were banned from playing that venue anymore because they were seen as cellos yeah and uh, I found that whole that whole sellout thing very very interesting and like you said I was very interested in discord and uh, and and there was bands from discord who would leave and Mm -hmm. be called sellouts but in the grand scheme of things, they weren't selling out very much and they weren't making that much money. And, and, but you see these dramas within these scenes. And when I see that, I'm like, and they're, and they're all looking back on the scenes, these mm-hmm. old punks, and they're kind of making fun of themselves, how angry they were about things, um, or upset about, it. there was another interesting documentary about this, a place called the cuckoo's nest in orange County. And, uh, um, what that went through, I, I guess what did occur to me on some of those is most of those venues have closed and eventually in the owners like of that cuckoo's nest was like, eventually I can't take it anymore. Right. And like, <laughs> I do see that moment in myself where I'm like, ah, I just can't take it anymore. Cause like that, that one in particular, that's why I asked. I mean, he, he was, it was the violence of like, there was like a cowboy honky tonk next to the punk club and the violence of the, of the punks and frat guys who are getting into punk and mixing it up with cowboys and then cops having to choose sides. I was like, ugh, you you don't, you don't know about that when you're just listening to the music. And I guess maybe that's the comparison you could draw to improv is like, what do I like? What what am I proud of? What's on the fucking stage and not the drama off stage and people telling us how to run our business. It's like, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Stop telling us how to run our go. And if you don't like it, go run your own business. Um, but, but I also think, uh, and New York city has changed a lot in that. In yes. Look how many in the 20 years, how come there's not more talked about on that of how many, and I don't even mean comedy, how many, artistic places are closing in Manhattan. Right. The rents are too damn high. But, but why, but it feels like the criticism and, and thought should be on the city and the, the people that run the city because this isn't just something that's happening to, uh, our comedy theater. Mm -hmm. It's, it's jazz clubs. It's poetry places. It's places that have art going on that isn't so ma- that can't be on Forty Second Street. Not that kind of mainstream right. art. And the city's pretty much saying, unless you're Forty Second Street level art, you can't survive. And you can just Google it. Just put Manhattan and the word closing, and you'll see all sorts of 
this bar has been here 30 years, can't survive anymore. Yeah. And people don't seem too concerned. Well, and, and it's like you have to, you have, to have the city at, that, at some point find value in those places and go, we're not going to charge you as much uh, 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 real estate, uh, property tax, mm-hmm. which we got really, really screwed on in the, in the East Village. Um, and that was after years of trying to open. Yes. Because that took a lot longer to open. People don't know that. People don't – they don't care. It took us over two years to open that venue, and we paid for it the entire time. So we're paying a rent and property tax and all that the entire time and going into the red the entire time. Red, red, red. Every month I'd come by, and people might go, well, you're idiots for being there for two years. But you weren't there because if you were there, you would know every month it was something new. It wasn't like – at the beginning, someone goes, this is going to take two years. And we went, oh, we're going to be dopes and pay for this for two years. Every month, it was like, oh, now that guy says we have to talk to another guy at the city. Oh, that guy from the city is up on corruption charges. I'm not even kidding. This all happened. This, if you go back and look. Uh, they're on corruption charges. Oh, the whole city shut down for two years or two months because they're getting rid of everybody. New people are coming in. Mm-hmm. And this went on for you. And then it was like, okay, now the fire department doesn't like what the last fire guy said. And it's, and you don't, and you don't know. You think, okay, one more month. Yeah. Okay. That'll just take two more months. Okay. That's just six weeks. <laughs> and then next thing you know, it's over two years. You've lost all this money. Right. Pay, but our articles being space. written on poor UCB had to spend all this money, but they're being good sports and still opening up a place. Nope. Well, that's so. That's, it's only we only get the negative well, that's, shit. That's why I asked the question to begin with because I don't think people understand exactly. Why the, do people need to understand? Unless they're in the theater itself, why do they need to understand? I mean, that's I, what I don't understand, I, I and mean, I also I, don't understand like why. Um, if we're talking this way, mm-hmm. why is are people not as curious about how other improv theaters in New York run? Ooh, like the Pit or the Magnet, mm. or whoever other comedy right. theaters. There's more than just those two. I yeah. Why is it just us, Sean? There was because we're perceived there was, as we're the biggest. There, there was a to do about one. Uh, was it when the annoyance came? Or I don't want to say the name because I I don't want to get it wrong. But there was some theater that came into Brooklyn and then had to shut down because there was there were Me Too allegations and. I would say there there's a been, lot of that. There, yeah, yeah, there's theaters in other parts of the country that had to shut down because there was nefarious doings. All stand-up clubs, yeah. improv theaters, um, sure. And then on the other on the other side, on the business side, I know there have been lots of discussions in the theater world about like the implications of say Broadway having to become almost exclusively big movie musical adaptations because that's the only thing that'll get people continuing to to pay the giant prices that they're charging for tickets so so the question i have to you is are you as a comedy critic going to allow that to happen where manhattan it seems like manhattan is just giving itself up to you just said it it's just like they're saying only the mainstream can survive and that's kind of how it was when we moved to town in 
six or five or whatever. Mm-hmm. When you were, first moved. Yeah. There were no improv. You know, Chicago City Limits was the only thing, and they were very small in uh-huh. a basement. And not very known or having much impact, to be honest. No, no offense, Chicago City Limits. But because uh, it was too expensive. We had to, every night, every time we'd rent a place, it was 300 to $500. So uh, I was talking to Richter. And that he, was in the 90s. And he, yeah, imagine what it is now. So Richter was like, when you guys got to town, there were no sketch, before you guys got into town, it didn't seem like there were that many ske- funny sketch people in New York. And I was like, I, how could they afford to be? When we went there just to do a showcase at the duplex, we had to pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for one night. And now, and now it's flipped around, and there was a piece in the Chicago Tribune recently bemoaning the fact that um, Freestyle Love Supreme, which is mm-hmm. improvised uh, hip-hop, mm-hmm. is on Broadway, and the Chicago Tribune was bemoaning the fact that New York is, take, is getting all the improv love. Oh, I want to see that Chica- article. That Chicago, Chicago should be doing all of this stuff, and it's flipped around because back in the 90s, all the improv and sketch was centered mostly in Chicago. There were some th- with the groundlings. Because it was like, affordable. It yeah. still is more affordable to be in Chicago. Yeah. And, uh, but now the cost, the, the cost of living, inflation, all that stuff moves up in Manhattan. But does Manhattan care enough? Do they care enough? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I live in Queens, so. But you, but you supposedly <laughs> represent as a no, critic I, I, the comedy just, in Manhattan, just, I'd assume. Just, just so, so, well, it's serious, uh, though. But, You're but joking, of, but that's but, what I want. But part of the reason I live in Queens is because it's more affordable. Right. right. But, okay, so maybe that's the answer. You, a comedy can't afford to be in Manhattan. I find that to be sad. I feel like Manhattan and stand-up in particular walk hand in hand. Yeah. I mean, it's um, part of a larger story of... Art and business. Right, but yeah. the b- art can't... We have such affordable shows at our theater. Like, we still have f- 5 and $7 shows. How many shows do you have in, in New York that right. are 5 and $7? I mean, really. Practically none. So it's basically New York as a city, like I've said it before. They're basically saying, you can't afford to be young and go see something that's not mainstream entertainment in Manhattan. That's what's being said right now. Yeah. And if everyone's cool with that, then that's what's going to further to be happen. But the, you could make changes. You could, you could give those institutions breaks if you're the city. Is uh, Los Angeles better about that than New York? No? Yes. It's, 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 it's still hard to, to do anything like license-wise, mm-hmm. but just – Every single thing we've done in New York has gone through such bureaucracy. Every single thing. And, uh, and, and I can never remember a moment where I'm like, oh, thank goodness the city did for that for us. Mm-hmm. It's more like, how many? They shut us down, dude. They've shut us down in our first location. And then they shut us down in the second location. If we're following the laws, if mm-hmm. you're following laws, we got shut down. And now there's another theater in our location somehow. How's that work? Right. How does it work, Sean? Yeah, impro- You're a comedy critic. Improv Boston moving into that space well, below Gristini's. How does that work? I don't Is there an know. article on that? That's a good question. How does that work? I would really like to know. <laughs> and I wouldn't take the word of whoever runs it. Mm-hmm. 
I want to hear from the fire department that that's okay. Because we went through every possibility on how to fix that place, and we're told by the fire department that that wasn't possible. So I'd love to know how that works. There's another theater in there right now. Why isn't that an article, Sean? Have you done, a, have you done any reviews of the new subculture space of, uh, of UCB being there? I've been to subculture, but not to a UCB show there. Since we've opened? I've been... No, I haven't been to the subculture. No. Why not? Support us. Support comedy in Manhattan. You, you want to know how my business runs? <laughs> it runs by people going to see shows. Mm-hmm. So that's how you could help the comedy in Manhattan is supporting the shows there. Instead of picking at me on how to run the business, go review the shows of subculture and let people know about them. So those young people can come get seen and ha- can have a great comedy life. Focusing on what you want to focus on, which is being a performer, um, one of, the, one of the, the technology, the benefits of technology now is that you can do a special like pot humor mm-hmm. on your own terms, right? It's not like you have to go pitch it. I mean, you could very well, well pitch it Comedy Dynamics... To- did this it wasn't just me they that it's uh i went and did a demo in colorado because that's another great state uh for smoking weed Mm -hmm. i went and did a a a dab lounge there in colorado springs so i made a my own special on my own dime and then i showed that to comedy dynamics and then they filmed in a more professional way, this uh, special in Portland. Um, does that answer your question? Well, my oh, doing doing your being able to do it yourself on your own yeah, terms. The point about yeah about the idea that in 2019 versus 1999, being able to make a comedy special. Yeah, yeah, you're allowed to, to do that. Well, without I d- worrying I did, about the people saying no or the people giving you notes, or I did Besser breaks the record, my special before this, completely on my own dime, mm-hmm. you know, my own bank account, and then I was sold it. So that was very satisfying. Um, this one, I did the demo on my own dime, but Comedy uh, Comedy Dynamics is a place that makes most of the stand-up specials now, right? Over fifty percent of them. You know, they're a dominant force in comedy special. That's what they do. Production and distribution. Yeah, that's all they do. That's what they do. Um, They did Gaffigan's last one, David Cross's last one. And I would say as a stand-up, sure, you want to get your... It's prestigious to get it on Netflix, certainly on HBO, because that's such rarefied time slot and then what else is there showtime comedy central there's probably like four places and then there's and then there's all the streaming places so it's like you either get on those four places mm-hmm. or uh you go the route i'm going which is i'm going to be on every platform like apple and amazon and direct tv and all that kind of stuff but uh yes to answer your question that's cool that the cool thing about, let's say I was on Comedy Central, is you're on Comedy Central, and someone can just be flipping this channel and see me and go, oh, wow, there's that. The negative is, if they're not watching then, or they didn't plan to tape me on their DVR, they won't be able to see me. Whereas, uh, now they, if I can get 
out to them in any way through things like this, right. they might do it immediately. Like when this comes out, I hope, when is this coming out? In November? This should come out around the time that the special Excellent. Drops. So that's weird and wonderful that they can listen to this and go, Matt was so funny talking about how the UCB runs. <laughs> That and I'm going to buy the, and his the, pot humor And the commodification special. of Manhattan. <laughs> yes. That I'm going to immediately I need to jump get stoned. I need to get stoned. To watch this special. I need some sativa. Right now. So I guess that is the thing that surprises me. Is like if you had said, you know, if you talked to me in Chicago or early days in New York and mm-hmm. said in 20 years, you're going to be doing an interview about your stand-up special, I'd go, of course we'll have a stand-up special. No, 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 no. You'll be doing an interview about your stand-up special, but they'll be asking you about the theater. I'll go, ugh, really? That's a bummer. Why aren't they asking me about the stand-up special? So that's the thing where I never would have guessed. Would you have guessed that 20 years later we would be living in a culture that's on demand? No, no, I guess I didn't. no one had that concept. Yeah. They would have been geniuses. The idea that... But it's also a level just, I, playing field once again. I love right. that. It's like it, when we grew up, you had no choice about who you saw on HBO. It was just going to be, as far as you knew, those were the only people that existed in the stand-up universe. Now you can go search out even people who don't deserve to have a stand-up special, who are just finding their voice still, right. have an audio hour out there. So you could go see them whatever at one of our small stand-up shows here and then find out follow them on twitter find out oh they got an hour find out oh it only costs three bucks you're listening to someone who's only been doing stand-up two years that's crazy (laughs) as opposed to someone who's been around for 30 yeah well yeah well back in the day you would assume you gotta do stand-up for five to ten years before anyone gives you a special that's nuts yeah or or an album yeah. Although, yeah. although even back then you could, you could. I do remember comedians had their could make their own CDs, mm-hmm. but they were low quality at the merch at their merch day. Yeah, <laughs> I put out my first. It's it's on my it's on mattbester dot com. Woo pig. It's about my it's about atheism and my love of the hogs. But it's my first stand up special. But I just put it out on my website, and you can only get it streaming. But if you're a fan of mine, you know about it, right? So that's cool. Does it does it feel like there's any point at which the web will break? Or is it just unlimited space for everything? What do you mean? I don't know. That, I don't that even there's know too I mean. much out there? Yeah. I feel you're frustrated with how many podcasts <laughs> are out there. <laughs> And, and, I certainly, and as a consumer, and as shining a crit- through, certainly as a consumer, as a critic, it feels like just keeping up with all of the content is can be overwhelming. And I, and I've decided to make that my full time job. So I would say to comedians that felt frustrated by that, like mm-hmm. when I started doing podcasts. So Scott Ackerman said, you know, you should do something like ASCAT as a podcast. So I came up with Improv for Humans. At that point, there were not that many podcasts and uh, or comedy podcasts. And so I, I felt like anyone who's into podcasts has probably heard of Improv for Humans, even if they haven't heard it, mm-hmm. right? Now I certainly don't feel that way. There's just so – I feel the frustration of like, oh, my God, there's so many 
forget comedy, just improv podcast or whatever, right? right? So now you have a responsibility, just like I said, when I, when I started about with improv, you knew everybody in the business, I was just gonna right? Say, yeah. So you have to become special at some point. You can't just be another three white dudes hanging out. You can't just be um, just interviewing uh, stand-ups. You got to find your special episodes. Mm-hmm. So with Improv for Humans, I got into, a, uh, you know, where I'm doing it the same way every time. Mm-hmm. If I expect any new new listeners, if I'm doing it the same way every time and I expect new listeners, I must be expecting people just to come to my show based on other people saying this is funny. Because that's the only reason they're going to come, mm-hmm. is other people going, this is funny, you got to check it out. And if that's the only way I'm waiting for people to come listen to me, that's lazy. And if I don't, if I don't get more people, that's on me. And I'd say that as of a stage show, too. Are, is the only way you're promoting your show is just waiting for people to say that's funny and pass that word on? That is lazy. Come up with a hook for your show that people are going to talk about. Like pot humor. Come up with a hook for your show at Subculture <laughs> that Sean's going to say, I have to come write about this because it sounds so interesting. Right. It's not versus just another, another improv show. This is an improv show. It should be but reported this on. this is really good. Yeah, you can't just go, well, this group's really funny. We're past that now. <laughs> right. There's a, a thousand different ass-cats. You need something that rises above in your podcast. Right. So what I've done, not that I'm saying I'm a Tony Robbins of podcasting, <laughs> but what I've done is I'll have concept episodes mm-hmm. where I'll do – I interviewed Rambo last week. We did a whole episode. It was a Purge episode where – it was like that movie, The Purge, and, and the Earwolf Studios are being taken over. So I broke the format. Not that I feel like people are going to go, oh, my God, there's a Rambo interview. i got to listen. But there might be a huge Rambo fan out there mm-hmm. who loves that character, who's also an improv fan, who goes, I've never checked out Improv for Humans, but now that they've done this thing, I'm going to check it out. That's what I'd say to podcast people. It's like, you got to you, stop feeling sorry for yourself. you got to find the reason that people should listen to you more than the other shows. And you've obviously also done that with your stand-up, whether it's breaking world records or devoting an hour, <coughs> hour 10 to pot in front of a crowd in a pot club. And it's those not are, on pot either, are, right? So, I mean, probably 70% of it's about pot, but 30% is about my family. Right. But if I just called it, whatever, Matt Besser's Greatest Hits or... Matt Besser in Portland or mm-hmm. Frohead, what well, they used to call me when I was a kid. Like just something that just had, you know, some just general mm-hmm. thing. Right. Or I'm whoop, counting whoop on people. too. Yeah. Electric I'm, Boogaloo. Right. I'm counting on people just to like me. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the topic, I'm hoping that there are people like. And the concept. Yeah. They're like, oh, I love that subject. Or, oh, I heard the audience is really high. I want to check that out. Or. Uh, Sean, uh, uh, won't stop talking about how great the editing is and how crazy it is. <laughs> and they can do that in late October or early November and not have to wait until April 20th to watch it. Uh, yes. You didn't have to triple down on the 
on the concept by releasing Actually, them. I did want to, but Comedy Central, <laughs> our uh, dynamics didn't go for, for that. Or I kept going, so we're going to release this on 420, right? And then all of a sudden it was like, okay, release in April, October 29. <laughs> okay, so much for that concept. Well, I guess you're just going to have to start a new like 1029. Yes, there you go. But I get to just, double. I get to double dip because once 420 rolls around, right. you're, you're going to have your. Uh, these are pot humor specials. I recommend everybody listens to today, and then I'll it's, get it's, two recommendations. It's evergreen. There you one. go. Evergreen, kind but green. Well, Matt Besser, thank you so much for, um, I guess, indulging me <laughs> at times <laughs> <laughs> by by going down memory lane while not. Uh, being stoned all the time. Uh huh. Okay. I, I you don't get high. I don't. No. Ever. I tried it and I broke out in hives and got paranoid. And was it at South by? No, it was. It was. I see. A long time ago. I see this dude at South by every year, and we're always smoking pot in that green room. <laughs> Aren't we? No. Huh? No, I don't smoke. No, I said we. We the comedians. Are oh, I see. At you. South by in the back. Yeah, but I'm not smoking. No. No. I'm No. I'm just taking dude. notes. I'm a... <laughs> waiting for one of us to get on SNL so he can say, I saw these guys smoking pot. Cancel. Cancel them. No, I'm not like that. No. I'm I'm more about the process even when you don't want to talk about the process. I love talking about the process of comedy. <laughs> but also the business. Ugh. <laughs> but you see you don't know anything about business. No, because if I did, I would not be a one-man <laughs> journalism operation. Right, but all I'm saying is... I would have a business. I would if have you were interns, in a paper, they would I say, would we're going to send the business guy I would to have, do this report. I would have interns. I would have, a, <laughs> mm-hmm. I would have a budget. No, I have none of those things. Amen, But brother. I do have two microphones and a recorder. There and, you go. That's all you and, need, folks. Just and someone Zoom. willing to talk on it. So thank you, Matt, for we're being willing Zoom to society. talk on it. Hey, and thank you to your listeners... Um, I'm much funnier when I'm talking about pot than my theater. Uh, so check out Pot Humor on Comedy Dynamics. Thanks, Matt. Thanks. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.